Hello, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in Hemonk through innovative digital media. Today, we hear from four leading lymphoma clinicians who give an interactive roundup of key updates in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma presented at this year's IWNHL meeting. Hello and welcome to this wrap-up session from the 18th IWNHL. This year, virtual, I'm joined by my colleagues, Peter Borschman, Steve Ansel, Martin Hutchins, who all, of course, spoke at the uh, meeting, and we're hoping they're going to be with us again for many more meetings in, in, in the future. So let's just get straight in and talk about what we kind of enjoyed and what we thought about the sessions that were presented. And funnily enough, uh, Peter, we're going to start with you because even though it's IWNHL, as we do regularly, we, we started with Hodgkins. So what were your, what your kind of highlights from this session and, and what do you think we can uh, take away from what we're hearing at the meeting this year? So basically, I think it's two large and randomized phase three trials we have to keep in mind for the future. And first of all, this certainly uh, the role of PEMBRO for relapsed classical Hodgkin lymphomas as compared to the so far standard Brentuximab-Fidotin, which shows a large randomized prospective international study and showed a clear benefit for the PD-1 blockade in Hodgkin's lymphoma over the BV. Uh, I think that's really meaningful. And this prompts us to use the um, P1 antibodies earlier in the course of the disease, and it kind of switches our algorithm, treatment algorithm. It's the first um, key message, I would say. We, and and yeah. the other message, or should we discuss this first? Well, I think it's a really interesting topic to be discussing because there are two things that came up from a lot of the questions that related to this. I think, firstly, I think um, some of us were might say a little bit surprised by how clear the difference appeared to be in the keynote study. I think maybe not, maybe it wasn't exactly expected, but it does raise the issue of, you know, at the moment, uh, Pembro and the Volumab are kind of for late patients after relapses, but the whole question of how we bring this um, up closer. And I know in the German study group, you're probably thinking a lot about how you start to design studies. But of course, this also raises the interesting issue is that um, in Hodgkin's, how, you know, adding in things, uh, how do you make sure we don't increase the toxicity if we do it earlier on? And how do you really design studies to show improvement um, in, in some of the really excellent outcomes you're already having? So I, I'd like to start with the adverse events as compared to conventional chemotherapy of PD-1 antibodies, in this case of PEMBRO as compared to BV, what has been shown that the toxicity profile is different. That's certainly true. There's more obviously autoimmune diseases or phenomena in, in the PD-1 antibody treated patients as compared to the BV where you have more, neuro more neuropathy and neutropenia. Um, overall, when BV came up, I remember that we were all surprised that this was so well tolerated as compared to conventional chemotherapy. It was a targeted chemotherapy, a targeted drug. It was much better than conventional chemotherapy. And so the PD-1s are certainly uh, different from that, but not more toxic. That's, I think, fair to conclude from the data which have been shown. And this raises then the question how to move forward. So I think it's safe to, to move forward 
in the treatment lines, even in, in first line. And I personally, I think it's, it's nice that Stephen is here online as well. I think the most important study, this is currently ongoing, is actually the American study combining NEVO with AVD and comparing it to the US American standard BV plus AVD. So there's a clear comparison between BV and NEVO each plus AVD. This is an ongoing trial. Um, but I think, to my understanding, it's the most important. It will definitely show if this uh, is uh, beneficial for the patients in terms of efficacy, which I uh, actually expect to see from this trial. Maybe Stephen would like to comment on this. Stephen, any, any thoughts about, you know, we've seen it before, that when you bring immune-mediated drugs um, that are safe in late, set, in late disease, that when you bring it further up, you might start to unearth some toxicity because you're dealing with a, a better immune system in that setting. Any, any concerns about that before you come back and talk about uh, specifically the, the trial that Peter was alluding to? I think there's always that concern, but to be frank, to date, we haven't really seen anything that's actually shown that. In fact, yeah. uh, the original uh, expansion cohort to test nivolumab plus AVD allowed for four doses of nivolumab as the very first thing the patients received. And I was very much expecting that there would be significant flares of the disease and the like. And in fact, the opposite seemed to happen. Many people actually right away got significant clinical benefit and a decreased FDG uptake on PET scan. So I maybe think the, maybe, the, the, maybe the immune suppression that's already happened in Hodgkin's is enough to prevent that effect, yeah? I think that's exactly right. I think actually, to be frank, um, you know, that might already happened. And remember, PD-1 blockade blocks cells that are activated. And so if you don't actually have that component of cells ready to go, you're potentially not doing anything that uh, may uh, specifically then activate the immune system to a greater degree. And I think... Uh, to Peter's point, actually both regimens have been pretty well tolerated and the addition of the novel agents have not substantially changed the toxicity profile. So uh, as he pointed out, and I think he's quite correct, it's going to be a very interesting head-to-head -head comparison. The challenge I see is then you've kind of messed up your plans moving down the road. It's like, you know, utilizing those agents at a later point has now made that data more difficult to interpret because you now will have people that have actually received those drugs in earlier lines of therapy. That's just a really interesting point because you almost get feeling with Hodgkin's disease now that it's, um, it's the more successful we are in treating patients frontline, the ones that relapse get harder and harder to treat. And you wonder whether we'll see the same thing that we've seen previously in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that is you start to cure the curable and you leave yourself with a group of patients really difficult to treat indeed. And of course, you're using up some of our best salvage agents up front. That's true. But although I think Peter's made this point in the past, and that is you probably only need to cure people once. So yeah. in other words, if you actually get rid of as many, if you get as many people into a complete remission that is permanent, you know, you only have to do it once. So I think if we can utilize these useful agents right in the beginning, then we won't actually have that problem down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, moving on, you, of course, chaired the next session, which was looking at um, immunotherapy in the microenvironment, which was, of course, a natural thing to be thinking about moving from Hodgkin's, where we were already thinking and we've just been talking about the microenvironment in that disease. What were your kind of takeaway points from, from that session, of course, except from the highlight being, of course, your own talk? <laughs> 
yeah, so in which case I can't say that that was the best talk out of, you know, from, from all of them because that would be a little self-serving. But um, quite frankly, I thought it was a good session because it highlighted uh, probably three particular points that I think are important. The first one you've already touched on, and that is the really important relevance of the microenvironment reacting with the tumor cell. I mean, I think the last 10 years, we've gone from making it all about the tumor to recognizing that this interaction is really important. And the more we understand how the immune system may facilitate the success of a malignant cell and how the immune system may also be kind of asleep at the wheel, as it were, and not really going after the tumor in the way that it should, that I think is, creates all kinds of opportunities to modulate that and change it. Um, there was a very nice talk from Christian Steidel talking about prime expression and really trying to have novel molecules on the surface that allow for uh, the immunology to be augmented so that the tumor cells are more visible to the immune system. And I think uh, what he showed with some of the mutations making that to be true, I think that's something that's a, a very exciting kind of role in the future to see if that's something we can really... Um, uh, you know, augment. And then I think the last thing was what, what I was talking about, and that is that much that we just discussed with, with uh, Hodgkin lymphoma, how immune checkpoint therapy has is, is really been great in, in that disease. It's been downright rubbish in the other diseases, to be frank. I mean, primary metastinal large B cell lymphoma, yes, there's been some success, but the rest, not so much at all. So I think uh, we really got a lot to learn about why it's so good in one area and why it's so not good in the others. Yeah, it looks as if all the components should be there in terms of predictive markers of a response to be seen in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it just doesn't really seem to do it. And it can't even think it's to do with the aggressiveness of the tumor because we don't see good responses, particularly in low-grade malignancies either. So it's a little disappointing indeed does ch make challenges. Maybe, maybe if we find the right combination partners, but it's, it's hard, harder to think of how you would add it into combinations when you're seeing the single agent activity being so poor as it is right now. I think that's right. I think basically we've made the assumption that the immune system was right in the tumor and raring to go. And I just think that's probably not true. I think the T cells that are there are, are not at all kind of activated as far as targeting the tumor is concerned. So to the future, we need to make the tumor more visible and probably need to just sort of reboot what's going on in the actual microenvironment and bring some fresh T cells in. In that case, it may be much more useful to do uh, immune checkpoints. So Martin and others that have done a lot of things about bispecifics and other things in which you would actually specifically activate the T cells. That's where I think immune checkpoint therapy may have much greater success in lymphoma in the future. It sure. seems to me right now, the only patients that benefit with just simply blocking the immune checkpoint are the ones that have a genetic or viral reason to have overexpression of PDL1. Uh, the ones where it's just sort of, you know, sort of natural biology, the T cells are not kind of ready to go. Martin, that seems like the perfect time to bring you in now because, of course, you talked in the next session. Now, the next two sessions were kind of something we do regularly at the IWNHL meetings, which is kind of overviewing kind of what's new and what's emerging. And I think it's safe to say from all of us that, you know, the bispecifics are clearly are very exciting right now. So, um, so in terms of what uh, maybe just followed straight on from what Steve was talking about, that is in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, looking as if, Checkpoint inhibition isn't the way to activate the T cells, but the bispecific antibodies seem to be looking very effective here. So 
what, what were your take-homes from, well, what are the take-homes from your own, your own presentation here, which I think we all very much enjoyed? Steve was saying, I think biospecifics is that we don't, we, do, we activate the T-cells with the biospecifics, but we also attract the T-cells, we recruit them. And even you can, there's pretty good preclinical evidence, and it's emerging from the clinical studies as well, that we make the T-cells proliferate. Yeah. So um, why don't we get Peter and, and Steve, as I say, to just fill in on the other things we heard. So Laurie Sen, of course, filled us in on what's new with uh, polituzumab. Um, and then Jennifer Brown talked about um, oral PI3 kinase inhibitors. Um, probably we could just wrap it up and to bring the two together. We had Tom Wixig talking about novel BTK inhibitors and where they are, you know, an, another class of drugs that look as if they should have great efficacy in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but don't replicate what we see in CLL, except, of course, in mantle cell. And then I think I'll, um, and while we're on the topic of, of immunotherapy, of course, we've got tafasiptamab, and who might have thought that targeting CD19 rather than CD20 would produce such different results. So anything, um, anything you take from the rest of the sessions that are there? I must say, I keep finding myself surprised. As you said, you know, who knew CD19 would be such a uh, exciting target? I do think adding a little lenalidomide clearly does uh, a bunch there to change the environment and to really augment the effects. I think that's clearly a, an important part of that. But I think they've got a really interesting study planned, haven't they? Archot plus or minus lenalidomide and tafetizumab. That looks like a really interesting concept, and it's targeting all comers with uh, more aggressive um, diffuse B cell and flow. I think that's a really interesting concept to be thinking about. I, I would agree, and I think the other thing that I do like is that I think we shouldn't throw out chemotherapy, much though there's all this discussion about chemo-free regimens, which I think uh, you know is an aspirational goal. We do need something that would really get rid of a lot of the malignant B cells. And I think that's what I like about that combination is that if you utilize ways in which you actually get death of B cells and hopefully immunological death, then your antibodies and your uh, lenalidomide will kind of further augment not only just the direct killing of the cells, but actually processing by the immune system. So um, I think, as you point out, that's going to be a very interesting study for the future. Steve, uh, I, I'd like to challenge you because to my understanding, but maybe I'm wrong, um, the, the study uh, has been done, the, the pivotal trial has been done in patients uh, not being refractory or not having early responses. It's just those with late relapses um, after first-line therapy. So it does not come really to a surprise that the, the outcome is so good, I would say. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true. I think um, I don't think that's a home run treatment. I think it's a, a decent treatment that will now be a further, you know, useful tool in the armamentarium. I think as I'm just thinking to the comment we made earlier about how can we cure more people the first time around, um, I think putting together all the good things that we've got rather than leaving some of them out is, is kind of the point I was making. But I think your point's well taken. And then I'm kind of interested in what you think of, um, of Selenexor. Um, it's like, almost like hit and miss, isn't it? It either works really well or it doesn't work at all. It's a, a drug crying out for a biomarker, but of course 
companies tried very hard and so have investigators and haven't really seen um, that biomarker there. But it's an absolutely fascinating drug and I think a quite fascinating class of drugs, which again, in terms of what it does to the P53 pathway, might look as if it's a perfect comp something to combine with with other things so what did what did what did you take home from what john how john presented this time good so yeah i'm, I'm completely agree so linuxor is def diff mechanism of action from what we have been discussing for uh, diseases i've worked with loma and uh, myeloma as well and i must congratulate the company and the investigators for pursuing well, they really persevered <laughs> didn't they at a time when lots yeah, of advisors were telling to give up they just really kept on going yeah Absolutely, and, and we're talking eight, ten years in early development of a drug which, frankly, most of us investigators came to hate uh, during the early days because it was so terribly toxic. But they really apparently believed in it and have changed the scheduling of the drug, and that seems to have made some, made some miracles, at least uh, judging from the data that we've been presented. I haven't worked with the drug for the last five years, so I'm, I'm just tainted by the early experience. And I must say that I, my prediction from the beginning was that this drug would probably, if registered for anything, that would be for weight loss. And then the, the last session, of course, we had, as, as always, and now becoming almost traditional at the meeting, is, is focusing on, on CAR-Ts. But this year, of course, with a little twist of thinking about um, where do CAR-Ts and, and, and bispecifics and other T-engaging therapies come in. So, uh, as always, um, kind of thought-provoking um, things. So, obviously, Jeremy kind of overviewed where we are with the CD19 CAR-T cells, we feel. And then Kath uh, Bollard, um, talked about the really interesting other targets. And of course, Peter, are we going to see Hodgkin's being targeted with CARs with, uh, in, the, in, the near, in the near future? Are you doing it already? No, uh, we okay. don't have access in Germany. There's a trial going to start by an American uh, company, but it's not active. Um, I don't know actually when, so I don't have uh, hands-on experience. But what I, I want to come back and focus on a little bit more is exactly that last talk we had about, you know, with increasing availability and, and thinking about an off-the-shelf product like a bispecific antibody, what does that do to CAR-Ts? And as we start to see this field emerge, are they, are they either or, are they complementary? So, so Martin, how do you see the field kind of going in the future? Mechanisms of action. Okay. And... Um, the, the real difference at this point, because we have pretty identical or similar response rates, so what we need for the bispecifics now is to demonstrate durability. Yeah. We've seen durable responses to CAR-Ts in a minority of patients, but it's still important. We have uh, a curative um, potential with the, with the CAR-Ts. We have not demonstrated that with the bispecifics. We have patients who have been in complete remissions beyond a year, beyond a year and a half, after completion of treatment, so so that's looking good, but we do not at all have the uh, the data to, de to demonstrate as um, as we have with the CAR Ts. I think one of the um, main main features of the bispecifics, aside from it being a drug which is off the shelf and you can give it to the patient tomorrow rather than in three weeks, it's the great uh, potential for combinability, and that can be with chemotherapy. We're doing this in studies already. It can be with other forms of, uh, of immunotherapy. We're combining bispecifics with uh, PD-L1 inhibition. 
We have a great combination, I believe, which is, we just began working with it, which is a CD3, CD20 combined with a CD1941BB. So you have sort of all the, the uh, stimulation points of the, of the, of the CAR-T in and off the shelf combination, but also with other drugs like lenalidomide or, so, so a lot of combinations you can think of where the uh, toxicity profiles of the bispecifics have very little overlap with more conventional therapy. I just one of the intriguing things I see is the the ability of the uh, bispecifics to be effective in the setting of CAR T cell failures. It's not so much that they work, but for me, I think Steve, interested in your thoughts here also. It does kind of demonstrate that the mechanism of resistance to the CAR T is not a kind of immune resistance mechanism of the tumor cell itself. So that in itself is intriguing, don't you think so, Steve? Absolutely. It seems to me that, um, you know, the CAR T cell kind of lost its way and just needed to be redirected and repurposed yeah. to some respects. And I think um, it, it again makes the case, as you point out, that those T cells still have substantial reserve and when being reactivated, redirected and, uh, and repurposed, as it were, can still do a lot. And I think as Martin pointed out earlier, I see the, the CAR T cells and the uh, bispecifics as being very complementary because you know, um, it's going to take a, a, quite a long time for CAR T cells to be available with the number of, of targets that bispecifics can, can have. You know, they're going to be bispecifics for many, many more targets. So I, in the future, see combinations with kind of standard approaches, but I also see combinations with novel immune approaches, um, which I think are going to make it uh, very interesting. But as he pointed out, um, the goal has to be, because these are pretty in time intense, treatment intense uh, regimens, it's got to be that patients are cured with this. There's got to be an increased number of durable long-term remissions um, for us to really kind of feel like this is going to be something we can push ahead and start replacing other part parts of our treatment with. Well, I think we're kind of, believe it or not, guys, we've uh, really almost entirely run out of time. Really That's what happens when you're um, talking to, uh, to friends and colleagues and um, about things we're excited about. So a nice brief kind of uh, aperitif at the virtual meeting for what's to follow uh, next spring. So I hope you all enjoyed uh, hearing the, the overview of the IWNHL virtual meeting. And we look forward to having another podcast after um, our event in hopefully is going to be in Barcelona uh, late spring. But I could just say at the moment, uh, real meetings are beginning to look as far away as ever. So maybe we'll be meeting from our living rooms again. So with that, thank you very much. Thanks to all of my colleagues for joining me and I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you very much. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify and Podbean, so you can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHemonk.com for all the latest updates in the field.